morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to a, another episode of Better Place, Talking International Law, with me, Jonathan Coley, from RMIT University down here in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, today, for our 10th and final episode of this first series of Better Place, uh, I am absolutely tickled pink uh, to have with me Michael Abramowitz, the president of Freedom House, one of the largest, most active advocacy and research organisations dedicated to advancing democracy and civil and political freedom uh, in the world. Hello, Michael. Hello, Jonathan. Great to see you down under. And where, where are you tuning in from? today. Uh, I'm tuning in from uh, the east coast of the United States of America. I'm typically in Washington, D.C., but I'm taking a, a, a short vacation in Martha's Vineyard. A well-deserved one, no doubt. Um, uh, well, an idyllic place to have a little chat about human rights and international law and, and your journey in it. Thank Absolutely. you. Um, I think there's there's no better way, I think, to, to wrap up this series of Better Place with you, Mike. Uh, on so many levels, it's, it's apt for me personally, um, and we might get into some of those connections later on, but also, in, especially in terms of the state of the world, uh, the state of democracy uh, and of basic political freedoms, it seems to be in the news all day, every day with many countries. And again, I hope we can... Um, uh, speak about that uh, as well. You know, we, we've been, you know, for those of you who don't know about Freedom House, we've been tracking the state of democracy in the world really for close to 50 years. And uh, I think during the period of our study of that issue, I think uh, things have never seemed as bleak as they are now. Uh, I mean, certainly during the, during the Cold War, I think uh, you can make the case that many more people lived in unfreedom than today, but all the, all the trajectories are going in the wrong direction. Right. Well, on that, on that note, let me segue to a more formal bio, Mike, before we get uh, further depressed, get our audience further depressed. Uh, a, a more formal bio. Um, uh, Michael J. Abramowitz is president of Freedom House. Before joining Freedom House, in February 2017, he was director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Levine Institute for Holocaust Education. He led the museum's genocide prevention efforts and later oversaw its public education programs. He was previously national editor and then White House correspondent at a small little newspaper called the Washington Post. Uh, he is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the former fellow at the German Marshall Fund and the Hoover Institution. Mike is a graduate of Harvard College. He's a board member of the National Security Archive. I'm sure I've missed something. No, that's, that's pretty much it. I, uh, I mean, I think the main thing to know about me is that I was a uh, journalist for most of my professional career up until about 11 or 12 years ago, and then I shifted into a, into a new line of work. But, but you summarized things well. And we really want to get back into that transition and, and what prompted it um, in, in a tick. But um, uh, so, some obligatory follow-up questions. Um, um, what isn't on your CV? Uh, hobbies, COVID lockdown, new languages that you've learned, or are you um, taking up painting or something during this COVID period? Uh, no, I've been actually, it's kind of funny, you're catching me at a, at a time where I've, uh, outside of uh, my house uh, in, in, in a suburb of Washington, D.C., I basically spent uh, our own version of a lockdown in, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C. for about six months, uh, uh, really not doing any travel, which is very unusual for me. Uh, uh, about the only people that I saw regularly were my parents, who uh, Jonathan, you know quite well, uh, and uh, and and you know seeing a number of friends from a socially distant. But you know we've had a you know Freedom House, as you've indicated, is a fairly substantial enterprise. Uh, we have roughly 150 people working for Freedom House. We have offices in 10 or 11 countries, uh, and so you know running uh, that organization 
from my kitchen table yeah. uh, uh, is, has been really required all of my attention. So I haven't really uh, taken up a lot of hobbies. In fact, the one hobby I do, I'm a huge, I'm a huge sports fan and have typically will go to Washington Nationals games or uh, football games. And that's all really been shut down as well. Yeah. You know, my one big kind of diversion has been shut to me, although now we're starting to have in America uh, sports on, uh, you know, TV and uh, outside you know, without crowds. But right, right. Uh, and, I've been enjoying the NBA finals, which, which just started last night here in America. Right. Go, go, go Lakers. Um, and, and your baseball team won last year, was it? Was it the Washington yeah. Nationals? Actually, broke a... actually, actually, to be totally candid, I like the Nationals, and they won the national. They won the World Series, which is our championship. But my my true allegiances lie with the Baltimore Orioles, uh, where oh. uh, my mother's from Baltimore, my wife's from Baltimore, and up until you know about ten years ago, we didn't have our own baseball team in Washington. So I kind of was, uh, uh, I kind of became an Oriole fan by default. Okay, but they're they're solid dwellers aren't they the baltimore orioles these days so they're not very good uh they've historically had a very historically when i was growing up in the 1960s and 70s and 80s they were very good they were one of the best teams in baseball but they've fallen on very hard times in recent years although they had a little bit of an uptick uh about four or five years ago but they're now in what they call in america the rebuilding phase okay the rebuild right um and uh, I'm collecting notes uh, from everyone I interview. Your favorite ice cream flavor, please, Mike. Mango. Oh, that well, was actually, quick. actually not true. I like mango oh. sorbet. My absolute favorite ice cream flavor is uh, Cherry Garcia from uh, Ben & Jerry's. Okay, Cherry Garcia, play on Cherry Garcia. What is it? Is it just cherry flavor or there's some sprinkles of something, I presume, in a Cherry Garcia? You know, it's some kind. It's hard to describe. It's kind of cherry flavored with chocolate. It's really good, and right. it's quite addictive. And if, if like, if we bring in a a pint of Jerry Garcia into the house, it's gone within a day. So I have to be <laughs> careful about how much Jerry Garcia I bring into the house. <laughs> Great stuff. Um, and uh, let's kick things off a little bit with, uh, in terms of career. And if I may ask you. Um, what are you most proud of when you look back on your career? What accomplishment gives you the most, uh, the, the greatest sense of pride and fulfillment? Wow, you've, you've asked like a stumper uh, to begin <laughs> with. Uh, I, I, well, I think that I would start by saying that there's no single accomplishment that I can point to. And there's no single ap- accomplishment that I think I'm uniquely responsible for in the sense of that I've always been part of larger institutions. So first the Washington Post, then the Holocaust Museum, and then Freedom House. And each of these organizations are really fine, important institutions uh, in their own way mm. that make major public, that make major, you know, public contributions. And uh, I, uh, you know, I'm proud of the work I did at all three of those institutions, but it's really part of a broader community. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, I think that, uh, well, one thing just to start of, I would say two things that I think I'm, uh, you know, at the Holocaust Museum, uh, one of my jobs was really to help build up a, uh, a committee on conscience, a center for the prevention of genocide. So the Holocaust Museum is primarily a museum about the, uh, about the, you know, about the Holocaust uh, in, 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 in Europe in, between 1933 and 1945. And the museum is devoted to that. Uh, the exhibitions primarily focus on that event, but I think over the years, since its founding in 1993, the museum has been very forward leaning in uh, both looking at the past and looking about what it means for the present and drawing lessons and inspiration from that past. And I think some of the early founders of the museum, including Elie Wiesel and a number of other significant people thought that you honor the memory of the Holocaust, not just by, uh, uh, well, not only 
by remembrance and uh, uh, remembering the survivors and but also by trying to do what we can uh, in the current day to to uh, uh, to prevent these crimes from happening again and obviously preventing these crimes one can number one it's a global responsibility and number two it's a uh, it's a responsibility that sometimes hard to prove that you had an effect. I mean, you only remember the right. the genocides that happened as opposed to the genocides that didn't happen because of because of one's efforts. So, but I'm very proud of my work to try to build up that program, uh, which is now I think really one of the leading institutions in the world on you know studying the prevention of genocide, and mm. uh, that's that, I, I, would, I would single that I would single that thing out as something as among the things I'm very proud of. But, you know, I'm proud of a lot of the work I did in journalism. And now, you know, I think Freedom House is an incredibly important institution. And by the way, something that I think your Aussie audiences would be interested in is that, and I wrote about this in a piece for The Atlantic, is that uh, Freedom House has been very active in calling attention to the uh, uh, repressive actions that China has taken with respect to Hong Kong. And uh, we can talk more about that. But yeah. the bottom line is... Uh, after the United States government sanctioned individual Chinese uh, uh, officials for violations of human rights in Hong Kong, the Chinese re retaliated by, by, by oh. sanctioning a number of individuals, including me and my organization. And while right. I suppose I'm not happy about being sanctioned, I think it's a sign of the, of the effectiveness of our work and that, you know, that they, we were one of the organizations that they felt like they had to sanction. So I, that, right, that, right. that was a proud moment for me. Um, you've touched on everything I wanted to cover. Thanks very much, Mike. Uh, the, um, but we'll, hopefully we'll, we'll have some time to unpack all of that. Um, I don't think I've ever spoken to a, a, a sanctioned individual before. Um, so that's got, it's gotta be kind of cool. You can wear that as a badge of honor, presumably. Um, yes, yeah, so it's a little bit weird because it's not really clear what being sanctioned means in the Chinese government. But I certainly don't think I'm going to be traveling anytime soon to Hong Kong or China, which is a little bit sad for me because I was actually born in Hong Kong and have a sort of a certain uh, affection uh, for that area, which I've not been back to for 35 years. Is that years. right? I did not know that. So you were born in Hong Kong because of uh, your folks. Yeah, my, were... dad, my dad, who you know, Jonathan, was a young U.S. diplomat who um, uh, uh, was, a, was, was a young U.S. diplomat. Uh, it was actually his second posting after joining the, 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 the state in 1959 and his first four years in, in Taiwan. And then he was a China language officer. And then he was a vice counsel in Hong Kong between 1963 and 65. And that's where uh, oh. me and my sister were born. So does that give you some, 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 some rights in, in Hong Kong or, or China proper, like birthright citizenship or something like that? Well, at the time, Hong Kong was a British colony. Right. So I, I, I've, never see, I've never seen where that gets, I, I, you know, I, I'm just happy to be an American. I'm not sure I need well, either Chinese or, or British citizenship right, right now. All right. Well, you might want to be jumping ship sometime soon and a foreign passport might come in handy. You never know, Mark. Um, Anyway, I'm being a bit facetious. Um, tell us a little bit about, let's start at the end. Uh, tell us about your current role uh, as president of Freedom House. What, what in your words, what, what's the mission of, of Freedom House? Well, well the mission that. of Freedom House is pretty simple. It's to champion global democracy. And uh, you know, our role is to push back against rising authoritarianism and to support uh, democracies and strengthen their institutions. Uh, and, and, and forms of government. So that's a kind of a broad mission, probably a little bit aspirational in many ways. But at Freedom House, we really focus on three specific uh, functions. The first function, which we are probably best known for, is uh, our documentation of the erosion. Well, let me just say, back up, I say, the first job is the documentation of the state of democracy in the world. So every year in uh, the first quarter of the year, uh, for the last 50 years or so, we've released a report called Freedom in the World, which looks at the health of democracy, uh, the state of freedom, really the state of political rights and civil liberties in uh, 200 countries, some odd countries, a number of other territories as well. And this report gets a lot of attention. It's quoted in the media. It's used by government officials. 
Uh, it's used by human rights activists in, in their work. And I think this is one of the most important things that we do at Freedom House. And we also have other reports we do now as well, including a, a new report, well, newish report over the last 10 years called Freedom, the, Freedom on the Net, which is actually gonna be coming out in a few weeks. And for those of you who are interested in issues of net freedom, of uh, internet censorship, of disinformation, that's a very, very strong report which people look at. So number one, yeah. we document the problem. Uh, we also have an advocacy voice. We work on uh, you know, testifying before the US Congress and other fora on issues of, of democracy uh, and freedom. Uh, we've been an advocate, for instance, of the Global Magnitsky Act, which uh, is an important tool uh, for the US government. Now, other governments, I forget whether Australia has a has its own Magnitsky Act, but, uh, but, 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 but anyway, we do advocacy. And then, and then we also have an international programming division, and that really is a division that focuses on supporting human rights activists mm. and defenders, including journalists, in doing their work. So for instance, just as one example, we provide a huge amount of, uh, I don't know, huge might be relative, but we, we, we provide a substantial amount of, of direct assistance to human rights defenders who are working in authoritarian settings, you know, to be able to continue to do their job, to be able to, uh, if they need a lawyer, if they need physical security, that they, yeah. can, they can come to Freedom House to support. So those three things, we are research, advocacy, and action. So, uh, and that, that's in some ways what makes us special, that we're, that we're not just, uh, if you say, a think tank, uh, yeah. you know, just opining about this, but we're also trying to do things about this. Right, right. And I want to get to each of those. Um, but I, let, let me back up. And, and you, you've mentioned civil and political liberties, democracy and freedom. You haven't mentioned international law yet. And um, as you know, this is a series about uh, with practitioners of international law, doers of international law. Does that label sit comfortably with you? Is that how you would also describe your, your work? Well, I would certainly say that our work is very much informed by international law. So, so I mentioned, for instance, the report we do, uh, Freedom in the World. Uh, you know, the indicators that we look at, you know, are draw inspiration from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And, you know, we are always looking, you know, when we evaluate a country, uh, we are looking, uh, among other things, at how a country, you know, adheres to international you know, legal standards. Uh, we're not a, a international law group per se. You know, we're not like, you know, the American Bar Association or the International right. Bar Association or, or groups like that. I mean, there, there, there are a number of other groups that focus specifically on, on international law, but I would say we're informed uh, by international law. And in terms of some of our work, uh, helping human rights defenders, you know, document uh, abuses, we're obviously guided uh, mm. by international law because you know yeah. cases often that that abuses violate international law yeah uh, i mean in my mind there's no question uh that 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 you are um and freedom house are, are practitioners of international law you not don't as you say i mean everything you've just said i think is is spot on in, in fact freedom house is was co-founded by the, the the mother of the universal declaration of human rights Ellen, yes, Eleanor yes, Roosevelt. Yes. Well, Eleanor Roosevelt was our was what was I think we call her our founding patron. That she uh, uh, was the early honorary co-chair of Freedom House, as well as it's kind of interesting actually um, uh, for your audiences. The other co-chair was Wendell Wilkie, who is a uh, was an, was a very interesting American politician. who was a Republican, but an but an internationalist. He ran against FDR for president in 1940. And he, uh, uh, so he was the other honorary co-chair. And, and, I, and I often cite that just because our roots are very much uh, in a uh, nonpartisan. Partisan, yeah. And, uh, and, we, and we draw support from across the political aisle in, and, in America. And, and, and the way we teach international or modern human rights law was stemmed out of the Holocaust, the atrocities of World War II. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, UDHR was 1948, uh, was, was crafted. But Freedom House predates that. Freedom House was born during World War II, I believe, 1941. Yeah, Freedom House, right, right, right. Freedom House was founded in 1941. It's, a, it's a kind of a cool story. It, it was founded really to mobilize public opinion against 
the America First movement of the time. So America First today has a certain connotation associated with President Trump, but in the late 30s and early 40s, it was a very strong movement, really an isolationist movement that yeah. uh, was spearheaded by Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator who crossed the Atlantic for the first time. And it drew a lot of support uh, from all sectors of American uh, society, in the business community, on college campuses. Cool. And really the, the point of America first was that America needed to stay out of the European war that was developing. And that was a big fight between 1939 and 1941. Freedom House came into being really uh, by allies of the Roosevelt administration to help mobilize American public opinion to fight that and to kind of get America into the war against fascism. Right, right. Um, yeah, very interesting origins. And now, as, as you said, you know, one of the largest democracy and freedom promotion organizations on the planet. For the record, in my opinion, freedom, especially in this context, is, you know, uh, an agglomeration of civil and political rights. Uh, without human rights, there is no freedom. They're, um, that's not their synonyms. Um, uh, I mean, the one, the one interesting thing, Jonathan, that, you know, you, one could ask me about is that, you know, the Universal Declaration also included, obviously, economic and social rights. Right. And, and uh, for a variety of historical reasons, you know, that is not something that we have measured uh, in the way that we, rec that we, you know, we really, our report is really focused on political and, and, civil. and, and, yeah. and civil rights. And is that something that you are looking at in terms of adding to the portfolio? I don't think so. I think, um, I think our strength is really on these core rights. I mean, I think we have to recognize the, 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 yeah. the context that I, we certainly, right. uh, I, I certainly feel that those economic and, and, and social rights are very important as well. And, and we have to recognize that much of the world maybe not the United States, but certainly a lot of the world does recognize those rights with the same level yeah. of, 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 of intensity that, you know, political and civil rights, but just as sort of an artifact of our, I, I do yeah. think that those, that, that those are very important, the political uh, and civil rights, and we really, I think, are do, do best by really zeroing in on what our strength is, and right. we leave it to others to measure the other rights. Um, and so, uh, freedom of the world, um, I think, is, yeah, is the is the to the title, um, you know, uh, a big bold uh, title. Um, so, what is the 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 state of freedom and democracy uh, in the world, Mike? Well, I can give you sort of the story uh, in in a nutshell. Uh, for the first thirty five years of that report, democracy was on the ascendancy. Uh, you had uh, military dictatorships in Latin America fall. You had uh, the end of the Cold War was a very important, you had the collapse of communism. Uh, you really had about 30 to 35 years of what Samuel Huntington, the political scientist called the third wave in which there was really a substantial growth in the number of democracies around the world. Mm. Starting about 15 years ago, that progress stalled, and we are now in a period of democratic decline. Uh, and that's, that's real, it's substantial, it's validated by other people who studied the same issue, but I think Freedom House was early on to you know, noting it. And I think the components of the decline include authoritarian countries like Russia and China in particular, you know, which at one point had seemed to be possibly liberalizing, uh, you know, turning much more repressive. Mm. Then you had significant countries uh, that had also been sort of potentially moving in a democratic direction. I'm thinking of countries like Turkey or, or, or Venezuela. They had be, they, uh, they've turned the other way as well. And then I think the most disturbing kind of finding in a way of the last uh, five years is that, um, uh, the established democracies in Western Europe and also the United States are also weakening. Uh, and I think a, a number from our last report really sticks out to me about 
40 of the strongest democracies of the world have suffered declines in political rights and civil liberties. About half of them, half of those 40 have, have suffered declines over the last five years. Hmm. So you see a weakening of political rights and civil liberties. And, and, and my own country is, 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 is obviously not immune from that trend. It, it, it actually started before the current president, but I would argue that it's probably gotten worse uh, under, under, the current, under the current situation. And, and worse to the point that I think uh, we, we've just had the, the first presidential debate, but just before that, um, even, I believe in the first time in Freedom House's history, you actually chastised a sitting United States president for eroding democracy in your own country. Well, well we've done that before. Uh, this wasn't the first time. Uh, okay. but I, I would, and, and, we, and we've criticized practices of other presidents, but, but this president is kind of in a unique, uh, in a unique category. And I, and I certainly think that, you know, we try to depersonalize it, but I think we really do try to point out where statements or actions you know, fall short of the standards to which we apply. And I certainly think the one thing that we're deeply worried about right now in particular is his consistent and relentless efforts to delegitimize the uh, integrity uh, of our upcoming election. This is, by the way, a tactic that we're familiar with at Freedom House that, uh, uh, that we've seen around the world uh, many authoritarians try to basically, uh, you know, hold elections, but they're kind of the facade of elections. I mean, we still have real elections in our country, but right. I think President Trump is trying to really, uh, rather than try to address potential problems, he's trying to undermine confidence in, in, in the idea that we can even have in, a fair election. Indeed. And, and, and Freedom House, your organization put out the principles for safeguarding U.S. democracy. As someone you know, as an outsider, but someone who has a, an abiding affection and admiration for, for the ideals of the United States. Um, it's, it's worrying that you need to have principles to safeguard US democracy in the first place. I mean, when you wrote those um, and decided to put them out, I mean, did you shudder? I mean, I, I, it, well, I suppose we've kind of gotten a little bit used to the situation, which has been regrettable for the last three years. Um, it's, it's, it, it is kind of a little bit depressing because I do, I'm like you, Jonathan, I'm, I'm idealistic. And I believe that, that, that our country, while flawed and has some very serious uh, issues that we probably have not come to grips with enough in our own country, that I do think that the ideals on which the country were founded still are universal ideals and are the right ideals. And, you know, I don't see our copyright uh, fighting hard enough to, you know, to uphold those ideals. But by the way, yeah. I will say, I think the fact that um, a group like Freedom House can criticize the United States, you know, as an international uh, human as part of our international human rights work, I think that is a really important point, right? You know, we are right. of a very lively and very strong civil society in the United States. So Freedom House is part of, you know, one of thousands of organizations that are, you know, out there calling attention, you know, to the problems, you know, out there with protests, uh, you know, complaining about this or that. Uh, you know, you cannot say, you know, unlike in a lot of other countries where, civil society has been, you know, cowed or mm. even legally, as, as you would know better than, better than many, you know, is, you know, legally intimidated by having their, you know, uh, registrations questioned, uh, you know, rules restricting their ability. You know, that's not, I mean, there, that some of that's tr happening in the United States a little bit, but really fundamentally, we have a very thriving and strong civil society. It's one of the things that gives me great hope about my country. We hope so. I mean, yes, uh, it, it does show, I think, demonstrate the, the fragility of, of democracy and of freedom and that we do need to safeguard it, you know, in a, you know it needs to be front of mind, not right. something well, that Ronald we can Reagan take for granted. A, Ronald Reagan, who was, you know, a somewhat controversial figure in his time, but he really believed, by the way, it's kind of interesting because if you look at like some of the things that, 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 that Reagan stood for, uh, back in the 80s, uh, you know, open borders, uh, you know, welcoming immigrants, uh, 
uh, promoting democracy, uh, making democracy and human rights, you know, part of U.S. foreign policy. I mean, these were things that would have put him, you know, to, you know, outside the mainstream of the current Republican Party. And, uh, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm always, uh, you know, struck by a quote from Ronald Reagan, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to mangle a little bit, but, but basically the point was, you know, freedom is something that is not just simply passed on from generation to generation easily. Yeah. It has to be fought for. Uh, by each generation, uh, mm. uh, whether it's fighting, not necessarily war, but right, fighting right. in terms of something we have to struggle for. So and, and, I think it's a very inspiring idea. And, and you're pushing back against those anti-democratic forces in the US, and you haven't also shied away from, um, from the, those anti-democratic forces in the other great power on the planet today, China. Uh, and you've mentioned already that you've been personally sanctioned. You're not allowed to go back to your birthplace in Hong Kong or presumably mainland China. Um, I, I'm curious, are there glimmers of hope though for democracy and human rights in China? I think there are glimmers of, of hope. I think, um, you know, I'm not a China expert per se, but when you talk to people who know about China, uh, you know, people who are very well informed about it, I'm struck by the constant feeling that the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party is really more brittle than, than, than one kind of assumes from kind of, you know, definitely under President Xi, uh, you know, China has taken a decidedly illiberal turn. I mean, it wasn't like it was, it was not a thriving, you know, democracy by any means uh, before he came to power, but, you know, he's really, you know, cracked down on dissent, you know, strengthened the great China firewall, which, you know, prevents uh, Chinese, ordinary mm -hmm. Chinese citizens from accessing the internet. Uh, he's now, you know, I think it's shocking to us. He's, you know, imposed, you know, he's really gone back on, on his, on, the, on China's promise that they would respect, you know, Hong Kong's uh, system of government for at least right. 50 years with this new national security law. So there's definitely no question that China's gone back taking a negative turn. However, I'm struck that four or five million or whatever million China, Hong Kong citizens hit the streets mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and protested last summer. Uh, I'm struck uh, that uh, you continue uh, to get reports from inside China of, uh, of, of, of individuals who are speaking out. Mm. Uh, I think we have to remind ourselves that these principles of, of freedom of thought, of, of freedom of speech, these are not American principles, they are universal. We, we started mm. talking about the Universal Declaration. So I do have hope that because of the brittleness of, 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 of the, I hope that the system is more brittle mm -hmm. than it appears. And I do think that, you know, one thing that's interesting uh, is, and she probably recognizes this, is that, because uh, he's been on an anti-corruption binge, that, you know, corruption is always the Achilles heel of, of these dictatorships. And, and certainly, uh, you know, corruption has in some ways Help contribute to a weakening of democracy, but it's also contributed to uh, uh, exposing uh, uh, exposing authoritarian countries to pushback from their own people. I mean, I, I think you look at a country today like Belarus, which really handled uh, the uh, uh, the coronavirus very poorly. Mm. Uh, widely seen as a as a country of you know where where insiders and favored people close to the president you know are mm. favored mm. and i think that is creating a very powerful pushback from ordinary belarusians so i think i i do have hope i i don't think everything is all gloom and doom um let's circle back to the sort of the personal side you mentioned that you grew up uh, that you were born in hong kong you're a son of diplomat so you must have uh, gone to a few different high schools potentially um, but I'm curious, during those early years, you know, teenage years, what did you want to do when you grew up? Well, I always wanted to be a journalist. That was what I wanted to do. I mean, I loved newspapers. I read newspapers from when I was a little boy, the sports pages, but then yeah. as I got older. So it's kind of funny. I, 
I worked on student newspapers, both in high school and college. And when I graduated, I went, I went right to working at a newspaper. There was no question that's what I wanted to do. And in fact, until I was about, you know, 45 or so, I'm now 56. I, uh, you know, journalism was the only thing I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I decided to leave journalism, but I still love it and still think it's an incredibly noble calling. And, and, and so we'll get to the reasons why, but, but at, you were also uh, the White House reporter at the Washington Post through, I, I believe, several presidential administrations. No, um, I covered, I, I was the, uh, I covered, I only covered the George W. Bush administration. Oh, excuse uh, me, okay. I, I, did different, I did different things at the Post. Uh, I covered politics, I covered local government. I was, I was an editor for a while. I covered business, I covered healthcare. I actually did a quite a bit of different right. types of reports at the Washington Post. I'm wondering, covering, I guess, the White House, uh, were there any sort of high moments in terms of human rights and international law that now, in retrospect, sort of stands out in your mind? Well, one thing that stands out in my mind is uh, the issue of Sudan and Darfur. Uh, if you remember, uh, for a variety of different political reasons, uh, it's not widely known, President Bush had a great deal of interest in, uh, in both uh, political liberty and freedom in Sudan, particularly South Sudan. And then when the atrocities began in Darfur in 2003, 2004 timeframe, he was quite seized with that. And obviously there's a lot of focus on Iraq, Afghanistan, but when I was White House reporter, I really was interested in the fact that President Bush had this great interest in in these countries. And so I actually wrote a uh, number of stories about that and uh, about you know how, how and why President Bush was so galvanized by this and, and looked at that. And you know it's interesting because uh, one of the pushes at the time was for, for, for Sudan to break into two countries and, uh, uh, and, and create South Sudan. And I think, uh, I'd have to think about whether it was still the right thing to do, but South Sudan is not from a human rights and economic, really from a human point of view, turned out very well right now. Although interesting, I never would have thought this 15 years ago, Sudan is one of the few countries in the world that is actually going on a different, more positive trajectory. Right, uh, including putting Omar al-Bashir up on trial. Um, and so- I can tell you, by the way, that's amazing from an international law. You know, when I worked at the Holocaust Museum, the, it was the first, the first uh, month I was there, Bashir was uh, indicted by the International Criminal Court. And that was obviously a big issue for the Holocaust Museum. Uh, you know, President Bush actually, you know, was not a fan of the International Criminal Court, but he cooperated with the court uh, on, the, on the Bashir uh, investigation and prosecution. I, I never thought that we would see the possibility yeah. of Bashir you know, being in the dock at The Hague, and that seems like it's potentially possible. Possible, right? yeah. Um, and, and so was, was Darfur the reason you jumped from journalism to the Holocaust Museum? I mean, from again, from the outside looking in, that's a pretty hefty jump. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I can't give you a single answer. I was, uh, well, well, you, well, I would say a couple things. First of all, you know, we've kind of touched a little bit about my parents, but I, I would say that, you know, they're very remarkable people, as you know, because, Jonathan, you worked for my dad when he was uh, uh, at a think tank in Washington, and he, um, they were both quite committed to human rights, humanitarian affairs, refugee rights, you know, over their career. So I, I have to think that that had some impact on me. I mean, this was something that I thought about, you know, from the time I was in, you know, uh, in grade school. So number two, uh, you know, journalism has undergone a lot of changes over the last uh, uh, 15 to 20 years, some for the good, some for the, some for the worse. Uh, I, you know, after about 25 years almost at the Washington Post, I began to just, you know, think about doing something different. Uh, mm. and, and, and it's kind of strange, but I met I met some people at the Holocaust Museum actually through my work on Darfur and one thing led to another. And then I was at the Holocaust Museum uh, in 2009 and it was a very great move for me. I've, I've, I've never regretted it. Although I love journalism, uh, I also love the Holocaust Museum. 
Yeah, fantastic. And and you did such amazing work there, as you say, setting up the Committee on Conscience, Committee of Conscience, I believe. Well, it's called the Committee on Conscience. On Conscience, excuse and, me. And it yeah. oversees the Center for the Prevention of Genocide. At right. The Holocaust Museum. Which is a little, I mean, it's a, a wonderful part of the museum, very forward looking and, and giving voice to the never again uh, cry um, from the Holocaust survivors that we, we hear very um, all the time. Um, so really important work. Uh, and, then, and then what prompted the jump to Freedom House, which is a little bit more of a comfortable sideways move, I presume? Um, but yeah. Well, you know, you can't you can't always plan it. You know, Freedom House uh, they had an opening for for their president. Uh, you know, with the person who runs the organization. Uh, I you know, had been at the Holocaust Museum for eight years. I was not really in uh, thinking about leaving, but I, I thought the opportunity to sort of run my own organization and. Uh, and put an imprint on the issues from like an executive level was very attractive to me. So I threw my hat in the ring and fortunately mm. the board selected me. Very nice. Um, and, and Mike, what keeps you up at night vis-a-vis democracy, freedom, human rights? I'm sorry, say that again? What keeps you up at night? Oh. What really troubles you? Of all the things you've, I mean, you've covered and we've you know, covered already some really depressing stuff. I would say I'm going to give you a cheeky answer and then a more substantial answer. Yeah. What really keeps me up at night is thinking about how I'm going to fund my programs every year. <laughs> right. I do it. And I literally will wake up at four in the morning um, uh, and, uh, and, and worry about that. But I do think, I do think the issue of the United States being a model for democracy hmm what I'm most worried about right now. Mm. I don't think, and I don't say this as someone who thinks that my country is right or wrong all the time. We've made terrible mistakes uh, in our history. You know, we have the stain of slavery and of Jim Crow and of continuing racial inequality that continues to, uh, uh, you know, really be a major mm. impediment Major, ma major mark of shame for my country. On the other hand, because of the rights that were in our constitution, uh, we have the capacity to self-correct and, and improve. And so I think if you look at US history, it is a, it is a continual history of, 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 of fighting to improve things. And so mm -hmm. I think that has global significance, right? I think uh, people do look at the United States yeah. Uh, for for inspiration in this. I mean, it's not surprising to me that the protesters in Hong Kong waved the United States flags. Right. Uh, that was, uh, or sang the Star Spanner. That is yeah. not for nothing that we did that. Right. Uh, so we know the United States uh, uh, is potentially a beacon for democracy and rights. Yeah. And I think that if we lose that, it's not only bad for the United States, I think it's bad for the global cause of democracy because who is going to, step yeah. in our place and, and make that. I, don't, I, I, I just think realistically, uh, you know, what you see right now over the last 10 years is very opportunistic countries, particularly mm. Russia, really China, you know, stepping into the breach and saying, no, no, the United right. States is screwed up. We are a model for how you should yeah. follow. And if that happens, I really, I, if that kind of is not fought back seriously, that will really, yeah. that keeps me tonight. Um, I'm conscious of time. I'm going to beg your indulgence, even though you told me you had a hard deadline right now. Uh, lightning round, okay, Mike? Okay. Um, heroes, it's, it's, no, it's no surprise. Um, your dad is, is, is a, a hero of mine, uh, an old boss, a mentor, a friend that I hold in the highest regard. Who's your heroes um, that have come before I you? Two, I would say Eleanor Roosevelt is one. Uh, and also a one that I think about a lot because of his connection to Freedom House is Bayard Rustin, who was, a, who was one of the great uh, civil rights leaders in America. He helped organize a march on Washington in 1963. And then he later actually became a trustee of Freedom House and led, our, led international missions for Freedom House. And so awesome. he was an amazing person. Uh, there, were, there would be two people that come to mind. Best movie you've seen on democracy and freedom and human rights? Wow. 
What's the best movie I've seen on democracy and human rights? Uh, like your favorite movie. It doesn't need to be the serious, most serious one. You're stumping me, Jonathan. I mean, I, uh, on, on, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, by the way, uh, this is not going to be, I'm not saying my favorite, but I've been, I've, I've, over the course of the pandemic, I binge watched uh, the HBO show Westworld. And uh, okay. Westworld is, um, I, mean, I don't know if you've watched it, but it is no. a very, it's, it's, it's really, a, it's, it's, it's a dystopian tale about where we could end up if we continue with surveillance and artificial intelligence and, and uh, it's really about human freedom at its core. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I mean, it's not, it's, a, it's somewhat of a flawed series, but it, it, it has get, it has re, it has caused me to rethink our redouble. <laughs> All right, Westworld. I like that. Uh, best book on democracy, freedom, and human rights you've ever read? Well, one book that I read recently um, by Marianne Glendon from Harvard Law School uh, about the founding, of, about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, now I'm blanking on the title of the book but it's very very good uh, it really it's about eleanor roosevelt and the and the uh and the creation of uh uh yes the Universal declaration i think it's a world unmade or world made I, yeah I'm, I'm sorry jonathan you're gonna have to no no i i'm, I'm also it, but it's, a, it's a very good book and yes. uh very I'll accessible put it in the description. And, and uh and uh but but it, but, it, but, I, but i highly recommend it um, your favorite international law moment in history? The Nuremberg trial. Cool. Um, um, and there trial. ought to be, yeah, uh, fill, fill the gap. There, um, there ought to be an international law about Well, I'm someone who believes you're going to consider this a dodge, but I do think that one of our problems now is that we're not doing a good enough job enforcing existing law. I feel that I'm sure there, it's kind of interesting. I hosted a similar talk uh, uh, a few months ago with uh, my friend Sushma Raman from the Harvard Carr Center and Bill Schultz, the former executive director of, of Amnesty International, they have a very interesting new book out about all the different new rights that need to be invented. And I, I certainly yeah. think they make a very powerful case or they make a case, I may disagree with some of them, what they're saying, but they do make a case that, 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 that rights evolve and that there, you know, that there are other, that there, there'll, be, there'll be new rights that we need to recognize. But I do think that if you look at this whole situation in the world right now, particularly with the United States, kind of, right now being in a, a moment yeah. where the administration is not that supportive of these issues that I think really rededicating ourselves to, to enforcing existing law. Yeah. Uh, something that's very important. I love, I love that you said that actually. Uh, so thank you for that. I think that's really important. Uh, I know you're out of time, but, but it's interesting in terms of creating new rights uh, and your freedom of net report that we don't have time to talk about, but there is no right to the internet. Uh, that exists in international human rights law. So I, I wonder if that is one right that you might actually support. Yeah, um, I, well, I think, I think that, I think that, I think, let me just say this. I think our reports on this subject are very good and I would really recommend to your, to your groups. It's a very, it's coming out uh, in the middle of October. Uh, but I, I, I do think that the, the rise of social media the rise of uh, the internet really has created a very serious challenge for those interested in international law, because you're right that, that you want to maintain. I mean, I think that having access to the internet is, is a right. And, mm. you know, when governments shut down connectivity, whether it's in China or in uh, Cambodia or, or, or India, where, where they've done that, that is a violation of rights I, or it should be in my mm. view. But I also think, that you have a situation where rights collide, right? So, uh, you know, the right to having free expression or saying right. what you want has led to very determined efforts to undermine democratic elections by the spread of disinformation and fake news, I mean, real fake news, not what our president talks about. Yeah. 
So, so I think it's, it's, it's a balancing of rights that I think is going to be really yeah. be a challenge for international lawyers in the coming years. Fascinating. And my final question, in, 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 uh, advice to university students, and, and perhaps let me ask it this way. In retrospect, what advice would you have liked to have been told way back when you were in um, university? Get fluent in another language besides your own. I think it, it, it seems kind of simple, but it's something I always tell young people who come talk to me that, you know, we live in a world where just knowing English or just knowing Chinese or just knowing uh, Spanish is not enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the people who are most effective uh, on my staff, I think, tend to be people who, who speak, you know, at least two or three languages. And I think that that's my biggest regret that I didn't really get command of Chinese or Russian when I was in college. Brilliant. Um, Mike, we are well and truly out of time. If I may, Mike Abramowitz, thank you. Thank you for uh, all the thankless and tireless work that you and your team do at Freedom House in advocating for greater freedoms for all, uh, for all the work that you've done in progressing how we collectively respond to genocide at the US Holocaust Museum, uh, for all of, of that work. Thank you. Thank you for making the world a better place. Thank you, Jonathan. It's really fun to be with you and uh, I hope you all stay safe uh, down under. Better Place Talking International Law is produced and edited by Keith Hibbert, advised and supported by Neil Grant and hosted by Jonathan Kolieb. Music supplied by Ian Post. The Better Place team thank RMIT University for supporting this project and we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we work. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present and future. <laughs>